Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Hello, freaks and geeks. Welcome to another edition of the Oddcast featuring the Odd Man Out. Thank you so much once again for taking your time to hang out with me. I really appreciate it. And this week we're going to be taking a break from the whole Ukraine-Russia fiasco. And we're going to be looking into one of our favorite subjects, which is the Pilgrim's Society. And we have, once again, our resident expert, the man who's spent countless hours. In fact, he's been investigating the Pilgrim Society since the 1970s. So let's jump right into it and welcome Mr. Charles Savoy. And he's going to be schooling us on some of the early members of the Pilgrim Society and how they belong to many other groups and were the heads of industry and banking and really played such a huge part of history that most people are completely unaware of. So let's do it. So what I'd like to uh, touch on is... Um... Some of the uh, members that were designated as uh, charter members in 1902 in the original branch in London, uh, we'll, we'll do it alphabetically. Uh, I might skip some of them, but uh, some of these people turn out to be surprisingly obscure. Uh, many of them are well-known. Seventh Earl of Aberdeen, uh, Knight Commander, Order of St. Michael and St. George. The the Pilgrims is interlocked with many, many, many other groups. Royal Victorian Order, Order of the Thistle. Uh, that's Scottish loyalists to the royal family. Two-term Lord Lieutenant for Ireland, Governor General of Canada, 1893 to 1898, large landowner, owned Stream Ranch in British Columbia, Canada, and the Rocking Chair Ranch in Texas, 152,320 acres, 
member House of Lords. His wife headed the International Council of Women. They had a uh, episode of uh, on the Rifleman, old black and white TV series about um, an absentee English lord that owned a ranch in New Mexico. There was a lot of this going on. Uh, let's see, Edward T. Aegeus. He was a coal mining kingpin, prominent in the Baltic Exchange, the Iron and Steel Institute, Lloyds of London, and the Royal African Society. He had holdings on the island of Malta. And according to Grace's Guide to British Industrial History, quote, he had a large connection on the continent where both his industrial and social interests were extensive. And in 1912 was appointed a chamberlain of the court of the Vatican, end quote. So the, the royal family and the Vatican, the popes have been in conflict for centuries. However, they do maintain liaisons. And uh, I don't know, I guess it's a mutual hate kind of thing. Uh, we've had a number of ambassadors over there that have been members. And okay, here's a, a good one. Lord Brassey, B-R-A-S-S-E-Y. I don't know where these Brits come up with these titles, but they really do. He was the son of a railroad magnate and uh, his father was an English civil engineering contractor and manufacturer of building materials who was responsible for building much of the world's railways all over Europe in the 19th century and other continent. By 1847, he had built about one third of the railways in Britain. And by the time of his death in 1870, he had built one in every 20 miles of railway in the world. This included three quarters of the lines in France, major lines in many other European countries and in Canada, Australia, South America, and India. Well, naturally, India. He also built the structures associated with those railways, including docks, bridges, viaducts, stations, tunnels, and drainage works. He was active in the development of steamships, mines, locomotive construction factories, marine telegraphy, water supply, and sewage systems. He built part of the London sewer system still in operation today and was a major shareholder in the Great Eastern, the only ship large enough at the time to lay the first transatlantic telegraph cable across the North Atlantic Ocean. Many of these people were just, wow, uh, the exploits that they put together and amass a lot of wealth. And uh, you'll hear sometimes people say, well, you know, the Rothschilds own 80% of the world's wealth all by themselves. Well, um, I dispute that. But when they go down that aisle, it's kind of like it's a way to not research anybody else. It's the lazy way out. Mm. And I feel like. A lot of these wealthy people use the Rothschilds as scapegoat. That makes sense. That definitely uh, makes sense. To cover their own tracks. Now, getting back to Lord Brassey, of course, being a lord, he was a member of parliament, the House of Lords, Freemason, 
member of the Admiralty, 1880-84, Knight Commander Aura of the Bath. Uh, we we mentioned that before. The Aura of the Bath is a, a, a ceremonial order which traces to an actual medieval practice in which uh, a knight would uh, sword butcher an enemy of the king and then take a ceremonial water bath of purification to wash the blood off. It's a military or militaristic kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, Brassy became Baron Brassy in 1886, Lord in Waiting to Queen Victoria, 1893 to 95. This is the son now, not the, not his father that he inherited from. In 1893, Brassy headed the Royal Opium Commission, which put its approval on the British India export of addictive opium into China, which had tens of millions of addicts frequently pressed into addiction at gun or bayonet point. They were forced to pay in silver, and that was Britain's scheme to recover all the silver paid from England and Europe over the Silk Road and ocean routes to China for centuries, buying uh, porcelain and silk and whatever else that they were exporting. From 1895 to 1900, Brassie was governor of Victoria Province, Australia. So these people go all over the world. During 1879 to 80, Brassie was president of the Royal Statistical Society, member of the Institution of Engineers and Shipbuilders, like his father, vice president, Imperial Federation League, president, London Chamber of Commerce, became Knight Grand Cross Order of the Bath in 1906. Here's an interesting position he held. He served as Lord Warden of the Sink Ports, C-I-N-Q-U-E, which that word means five, from 1908 to 1913. Now, what are the Sink Ports? Well, it's actual territory on the um, east, southeast coast of England, from which the invading Spanish Armada in 1588 was defeated. And they turned that into ceremonial posts of honor uh, to commemorate their victory over the Spanish Empire. We'd all be speaking Spanish right now if Spain had had won that war. And um, they came uh, to England in 1588 to reinstitute the papal religion over the country and also to kill the royal family. Baron Brassy acquired the uh, eighth Earl of Delaware as a son-in-law. Now, the Earls of Delaware gave their family name to the state of Delaware. Our, our, there's so much history here, it just overwhelms the senses. And uh, the ninth Earl of De La War became a member of the Pilgrims London. Now that's that's just one guy there, Baron Brassy, Lord Brassy. For people that uh, are just listening to this and they might not understand, especially the younger people, these Brits, especially they, when they become knighted or they they get a certain position, they change their title, and most of the time it doesn't have their real name in the title any longer. And that makes it even harder to kind of pin down some of these guys and what they were behind and and kind of what they were connected to. Oh yeah, and they've they've got so many titles. It's just here's a good one. Uh, 
banker, Sir Ewan Cameron, Scotsman, chairman of Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, London. That was uh, Britain's opium bank over China. Knight Commander, Order of St. Michael and St. George. We'll keep running into that one. That's another military uh, reference. <clears throat> he arranged loans. Okay, somebody out there is going to like this. He arranged loans from the Rothschilds to the Empire of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. He sold Japanese war bonds. He also had a title of Baronet and leader of Clan Cameron, great-great-grandfather of David Cameron, UK Prime Minister, 2010-16, to 16, and member of the Pilgrims. Bankers Magazine, Volume 79, 1905, page 578, stated, Sir Ewan Cameron, in his London career of less than 15 years, had the predominant share in the launching of more important loans than has fallen the lot of any other London banker during this period. In that time, the whole of the debts of Japan and China known to this market, amounting in all to over 80 million sterling, have been issued, and in every loan, save one trifling exception, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank took a part, and usually the leading part, in its arrangement and flotation. So here we have a recent United Kingdom Prime Minister with the heritage of opium, opium dealing. Uh, very, very dirty business. Yeah, now wasn't the royal family, they were pretty heavily connected to the opium trade, weren't they? All the British, well, I say all the British, it seems to me like most of the British upper crust and also uh, certain of the Scots, the Keswicks, Keswicks, uh, they have a, a multi-billion dollar enterprise today. Excuse me, uh, my memory is failing me at this point. I didn't have my coffee this morning. That's but, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that probably. <laughs> well, I was, uh, when I did that show on the Skull and Bones, they talked about the Russell family and also, I think opium, they, yeah. yeah, opium and um, the Delanos, I guess, which was, uh, of course, uh, the family of Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt. That's right. So, a lot of people don't like to, wouldn't like to know that that history there of FDR, but it's too bad, you know. Yeah, they say that Biden is the worst president we've ever had, but the fact is, FDR was worse, uh, at least as of now my viewpoint because we have uh, so much socialism come in under uh, which is really welfare for the the uh, concentrated financial interests but fdr took gold from the public and biden hadn't done that not yet fdr took silver from the public and uh, biden hasn't done that yet i'm sure it's being mulled over FDR got us into World War III by intentionally having the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on on off alert status. Well, that's another. Uh, there was a whole book written about that by a retired naval admiral. I've you know I've I've seen some um, of the work that uh, Corbett. I forget his first name. I should know it. But anyway, he did a good uh, little uh, podcast on that, and I think he had the guy you're talking about on there. And that was really interesting. I, I didn't know any of that stuff. And, uh, 
you know, they knew that the attack was coming. They didn't tell the admiral and the, and then they tried to blame the admiral and, and one of the generals for the attack. And, you know, I think eventually those guys got their, uh, their stripes back and were able to kind of, uh, clear themselves, but it was just, a a travesty doesn't even, I mean, it's a, a tr- atrocity doesn't even begin to, to cover what, uh, you know, what FDR did by hiding that and not, uh, you know, he allowed it to happen, basically. Yeah, and FDR put, oh, probably over 100,000 small and medium-sized landlords out of business with something called rent controls. They wouldn't let, uh, they wouldn't let them increase the rent uh, while inflation was eating away at everything. And so what it was about was the big, well-capitalized. Pilgrim's Society realty interests were able to gain lots of distressed assets as these people went out of business. And then then uh, when it was deemed, oh, well, we don't need rent controls anymore. So they come in with all these new properties in addition to what they already have, which was vast, and raise the prices. And that's okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds exactly like what BlackRock and some of these others are doing today. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, BlackRock doesn't have some members in the Pilgrim Society. Yeah, uh, I think uh, there's some Jewish names there that I consider to be poor prospects because this thing is so heavily Episcopalian. Okay, Mm. here's another one from O2. Sir Bache Cunard Baronet, title Baronet, owner of the Cunard transatlantic shipping fleet his wife was earlier rejected by the son of the king of poland now notice his first name was bache b-a-c-h-e well we had dallas texas was named after dallas selwyn bache a financial bigwig in the early 1800s and uh, we had an investment bank on Wall Street, Bates and Company. And so there's some kind of genealogy going on there. And here's one that uh, huh, is really under the radar. Viscount Deerhurst, also known as the Ninth Earl of Coventry, one of the biggest landowners in the entire United Kingdom. <clears throat> These people are... Uh, typically beneficiaries of British imperialistic exploitation all over Africa, India, China, South America, going back centuries. And uh, let's see, this one had a title, The Master of Elibank. His actual name, Alexander William Charles Oliphant Murray. Parliamentary Secretary to the Treasury Undersecretary of State for India, see, loot in other countries, Comptroller of the Royal Household, owner of large estates in Scotland, partner in Pearson and Company, a large publishing house, I believe it was the world's biggest at one time, approved of British military atrocities and genocide in the Second Boer War in South Africa. 1899 to 1902. Lord Grenfell, 
they had an investment bank called uh, Morgan Grenfell and Company in London. Well, Grenfell was a member of the House of Lords, Order of the Bath, St. Michael and St. George, uh, high-ranking British Army officer. After serving as aide-de-camp to the commander-in-chief in South Africa, he fought in the Ninth Xhosa War, the Anglo-Zulu War, and then the Anglo-Egyptian War. He went on to become Sirdar, commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, commanded the forces at the Battle of Suakin in December 1888 and at the Battle of Tusky in August 1889 during the Mahdist War. M-A-H-D-I-S-T, Mahdist War. There was a movie with Charlton Heston, called, and the movie was called Sudan, and there was this Islamic military leader called the Mahdi. It was in, uh, they made a movie about that. Of course, it's a whitewash in England as usual. After that, he became governor of Malta and then commander in chief over Ireland. His father had large holdings in South Australia. This is Lord Grenfell, including copper and tin smelting and owned 347 slaves in British Jamaica. That was his father. Prince Francois Hatzfeldt, leader of a German noble family, which produced diplomats and generals and owned a string of expansive castles and vast estates in the German countryside. Sir Thomas H. Holditch, H-O-L-D-I-C-H, Order of St. Michael and St. George, and we keep running into that one. Member, Eminent Order of the Indian Empire, Order of the Bath, Superintendent of Frontier Surveys in British India, President of the Royal Geographical Society. The RGS was formed to seek out valuable mineral deposits, and also it was formed to help reconnoiter for more military adventurism. He saw military service in the Second Anglo-Afghan War of 1878-79 and earlier military excursions. Chief Surveyor of the Afghan Boundary Commission, 1884-86. He later served on the Tasmar Boundary Commission of 1894, the Pamir Mountains Boundary Commission of 1895, and the Perzo that's Persia, Baluchistan Boundary Commission of 1896. He was also engaged in the Cordillera of the Andes, South America, boundary case by the governments of Argentina and Chile in 1902 to define the boundary along the crest of the Andes Mountains. These people are not stumble bums or uh, high rollers, although the organization itself is quite spectral. Very few people know about it. Sir William J. Ingram, Baronet, Managing Director of Illustrated London News, member House of Commons for 17 years, son-in-law of a member of the Legislative Council of South Australia. The Pilgrim's Emblem was designed by a staff artist of the Illustrated London News. <clears throat> All right, here's a big shot. Sir Alfred L. Jones, who is remembered as the uncrowned king of West Africa, got control of African Steamship Company Limited, acquired considerable territorial interests in West Africa, 
and financial interests in many of the companies engaged in opening up and developing that part of the continent. He dominated the Bank of British West Africa. Wiki states that in the early 1900s, Alfred Jones had a monopoly on the Congo mail traffic between there and Belgium, as well as consular duties representing King Leopold of Belgium. And um, he was described by William T. Stead, yeah, as the uncrowned king of West Africa. Stead was one of Rhodes' associates, you know. Jones had myriad interests in 1900 in order to supply his ships with fuel. He formed Elders Navigation Collieries Limited and bought the Oakwood Collieries in South Wales. Uh, processing coal. He took the leading part in opening up a new line of uh, communication with the West Indies and in stimulating the Jamaica fruit trade and tourist traffic. He also developed a tourist trade in the Canary Islands, which that was Spain, and the banana industry in the Canary Islands. Jones was instrumental in founding the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and chaired the Bank of British West Africa he was president of the Liverpool, England Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Jones had been interested in cotton growing in West Africa and had even distributed cotton seed there. As a result, in 1902, he was approached and became first president of the British Cotton Growing Association. He was appointed a Knight Commander of Order of St. Michael and St. George, KCMG, in the 1901 birthday honors list of November 9, 1901, in recognition of services, uh, the king uh, to West African colonies and to Jamaica, and invested as such by King Edward VII at St. James Palace. Let me take a breather here. Yeah, these guys get around. That's something that uh, it's kind of hard to understand at first, is they're basically worldwide you know, they were globalists before globalists, you know, before that term really got going. And, you know, so it's no wonder that these governments like in Australia and New Zealand and places like that are so authoritarian and, and globalist minded, because I think that they were taken over a long time ago. You know, people kind of forget how how old Britain is and how old England is and how many more you know years that they had on the United States to learn how to, you know, kind of control people and, and kind of work their way between politics and the private sector and, and kind of mix between both of them to get what they want. And also they were way up on propaganda way before America because they just had the time and the means to do it. So these guys, you know, they spread their tentacles all over and, uh, you know, they still are around today, probably more powerful than ever. And uh, it's one of the biggest reasons why our world is the way it is. Well, in the uh, very important article, May 1902 Review of Reviews, article named uh, titled Cecil John Rhodes, uh, it never mentions the Pilgrims organization by name, but they were founded the very next month in London. And everything in there fits them descriptively far better than any other group. And um, 
they speak, I think it's on page 556, of a 200-year plan. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> you, you can find it on the web, uh, the best souls of the next 200 years. Well, that's another thing I've tried to kind of get through to people, you know, especially in today's day and age with technology. And I tell people like, you know, you have that ever changing screen, the ever scrolling screen on Facebook and Twitter. And so no one story really sticks with you because here comes 10, 15 other ones to kind of go over it and and kind of make you forget. But um, I think that plays a big part in you know, kind of our world and what we remember and what we don't remember. And uh, we we don't understand that these globalists and these very, very powerful, very wealthy, smart, a lot of times, people and groups, they're thinking, you know, 20, 50, 100, 200 years into the future where, you know, we're living a lot of us paycheck to paycheck and even people that are doing you know, are, are kind of doing okay financially, they, they can't think that far into the, the future, you know, maybe a, a year or two ahead of time or something like that. But uh, these guys have got it all planned out. They know what they're doing and they're so well organized. It's, it's absolutely scary to even think about the, how, you know, how organized that side has been and is right now. Yeah. And uh, so we'll move on to the next, next one. Uh, Royal Navy Admiral Sir William R. Kennedy. In 1856-58, Kennedy was part of the British imperialist forces in China, defeating the Chinese in the Second Opium War. He was awarded a medal by the Royal Humane Society for saving a man drowning in waters off the coast of South Africa. Uh, he does a good deed, in, and he's remembered as a good man, and then but over here, he's hurting millions of people doing something else. Uh, the British war vessels that he served on had ominous and devilish names like Wasp and Druid. He rose to commander-in-chief of the, over the British East Indies. In 1897, Kennedy was promoted to Knight Commander or the Bath by Queen Victoria and in 1911 promoted by King George V to Knight Grand Cross or of the Bath. Uh, Director Barclays Bank, Lord Kinnaird, Knight of the Thistle, member of the Royal Engineers, President of the British Rugby Association, Money and Sports. <coughs> Let me see. Lord Lamington, whose actual name was Charles Cochrane Bailey, B A I L L I E, Knight Grand Cross, Order of St. Michael and St. George. Knight Grand Commander, Most Eminent Order of the Indian Empire. The Indian Empire. That's the way they talk. <laughs> Royal, yeah, they do. They have a drawl. They just had their tea and crumpets and they say Empire. Royal Scottish Geographical Society, Royal Company of Archers, King's Bodyguard for Scotland, Royal Governor of Queensland Province, Australia, 1896 to 1901. British governor of Bombay, India in 1903 to 07. He would have been deeply involved with the export of, India, of opium grown in India to Chinese addicts where it was sold in payment for silver. Vice president, Trinity College, London. 
and he was president at one time or another of the following entities. The Persia, which is Iran, the Persia Association, National Indian Association, East India Association, Middle East Association, Indigent Muslims Burial Fund, British Red Crescent Society, Vice President Royal Central Asian Society, like you said, you know, they, the world is their playground, Vice President Royal Geographical Society. His father-in-law had holdings in Caledonian Railway Company. His son was Queen Victoria's godchild. Lamington National Park, Australia and Mount Lamington in New Guinea bear his name. <clears throat> and let me see. Arthur Hamilton Lee, Member of Parliament, also known as Viscount Lee of Fairham, Member Most Exalted Order of the Star of India. Well, they got all these high-sounding stratospheric, ionospheric decorations at the cost of uh, ordinary people, millions of them. Member or of the Bath, or of the British Empire, King's Privy Council. Uh, and that's not where they go to poop, by the way. That's <laughs> that's where advice, giving advice. First Lord of the Admiralty, Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries. His grandfather was a member of British forces in 1798 at the Battle of the Nile. Became son-in-law of the founder of American Union Telegraph Company. Chaired National Gallery of Art. Chairman Royal Commission of Indian Civil Service. President of Cheltenham College. Chairman of the Police Powers and Procedure Commission. Chairman of the Radium Commission. R-A-D-I-U-M. You know, radium is... Uh, is a dangerous radioactive uh, element and uh, somewhere in the Silver Squelcher series I touched on the uh, what they call the radium ladies who used to put radium on uh, watch dials uh, so glow in the dark and uh, they developed some pretty serious illnesses uh, yep what was that clock that they talked about that they made parts for a big Ben? big Ben, or was it i forget uh, that now. part i don't remember but i'll take your word for it yeah we uh went to we, we live about 30 miles from the oak ridge national lab oh boy and yeah exactly and uh, a lot of people who work there got cancer and uh, we took my son the other day to the uh they've got a Museum of Science and Energy there that I, I suppose that TVA had paid for. It's been there for a long time, and it's basically nothing but praising everything they did and overlooking everything bad they did. But uh, they have a display there, and they talk a little bit about that, but they don't mention the fact that those ladies got cancer. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's bad PR, right? Right. Uh, so moving on to a product that you still see in the supermarket, Sir Thomas Lipton, Baronet, Knight Commander, Royal Victorian Order, founder of world-famous Lipton Tea Company and owner of a large chain of grocery stores, owned a large meat packing plant in Nebraska. He undercut others in the tea business by exploiting indentured workers in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, south of India. He owned equestrian horse racing stables and yachts. <clears throat> 
some of these guys uh, didn't have as big a footprint as others, uh, which is why I've said that the organization appears to have a hard inner core of very powerful people that direct uh, the trajectory of the group. And then there's uh, mid-circle members who are quite powerful. And then there's outer circle members who are oftentimes either flunkies or pets of the powerful members. Uh, and what would be an example of one today? I'm trying to think. Of, there's, a, there's a woman in New York named Gina Polara, P-O-L-A-R-A, one of the very rare Italian names in the group. And she's in the uh, New York art world, and they brought her in, and she's strictly flunky. Okay, back to the O2, William A. MacArthur, member of parliament and director of Bank of Australia and Asia, owned a chain of retail stores, commissioner for New South Wales, at the Colonial and Indian Exhibition in 1886. Lord Napier of Magdala, second Baron Napier of Magdala, father was commander-in-chief of British India and governor of Gibraltar, you know, at the south tip of Spain. His father, who died in 1890, was a commander in the Second Opium War of 1858. His father also represented Queen Victoria at Madrid as ambassador extraordinary upon the occasion of Alfonso Twelfth of Spain's second marriage. The seventh, Duke of Newcastle, owner of Clumber Castle and Estates, another liaison between the royal family and the Papal Vatican. Let's see, Sir Gilbert Parker, member of parliament 1900 to 1918, Married a wealthy heiress of Dutch ancestry from New York. Wiki states, the British put forth a large effort to find an able and persuasive writer to effectively communicate with the American public. They decided to use Sir Gilbert Parker. The British supplied Parker with a large propaganda office to plan, write, and distribute the new technique of British propaganda. His main objective was to create new relationships and hold on to existing ones with the American citizens. His writings, known as the White Papers, were sent to the New York Times in 1914. The subheading of the article read, A Modest Appeal from Sir Gilbert Parker to Read the British Side. To do this, Gilbert showered the American people with writings from people such as Rudyard Kipling, H.G. Wells, and George Bernard Shaw. Using his fame and charisma, Sir Gilbert Parker flattered the American press with eloquent words and compliments. He called the Americans fighting people. He also said that this war, that is World War I, will prove them to have everything that they've always had, courage, swiftness, capacity to perform, and a lightning-like directness. His writings essentially educated the one source that he knew would reach the majority of Americans. However, he didn't stop there. He continued to spread his knowledge by distributing propaganda material to American libraries, educational institutions, and periodicals. Now they're, they're beating the drums for attacking Russia now, which is, that's suicide. While focusing on professional establishments, he continued to create personal relationships 
with American elites such as college professors, scientists, doctors, politicians. His method of establishing personal relationships was a landmark later used in other methods of propaganda. It was the complete and skillful technique later to be developed by many other propagandists, lobbyists, and public relations counsel. Okay, here's Parker quoting. He says, practically since the day the war broke out, I was responsible for American publicity. He played a crucial and significant role in British propaganda during World War One, due to his strategic marriage to Amy Van Tyne, a wealthy Dutch family. Reputation as a writer and social status among the American people had established many friendships with influential Americans in all professions. Uh, Parker was chosen by Charles Masterman and the British government to head the subdivision of Wellington House, responsible for American propaganda. His goal was to convince America to support the British cause in the war. Well, they took over the German colonies in Africa. They renamed Tanganyika Tanzania. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that 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 was it. And there were others. He worked with the theory that the British cause could not be accomplished through violent wooing, but must instead be efforts of gentle and modest courtship. Parker continued his propaganda efforts up to the year America entered the war in 1917. At the beginning of 1917, he visited the U.S. to meet with Americans he'd been corresponding with on February 3, 1917. Woodrow Wilson made a speech during Parker's visit that severed diplomatic ties with Germany. The U.S. had almost declared war, and Parker believed that he'd fulfilled his responsibilities. And um, all of Wellington House's activities were kept in complete secrecy. This increased the credibility of their publications because they could not be traced back to any official sources. Parker's letters concealed their connection and origin to the British government, and his American contacts never realized they were being manipulated. Well, I dispute that. They were in there with him. Today, his influence on the First World War and America's entry is often overlooked, even by seemingly comprehensive propaganda analysis. You know the um, the whole First World War in the in the lead up to it, you know it was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and it really seems like it was a. I do believe that they were at war with these other countries, but it it seemed like the Brits really meant to bring the U.S. into it as a way to weaken us and, and begin to kind of, uh, you know, they wanted to slip in the the League of Nations and all that stuff, and and it went a long way, I think, to doing that you know it, it it's like every time we get involved in one of these big ordeals like the world wars or iraq or afghanistan you know it really changes things at home and people don't realize that at first because they think well we got to go in and help we're, we're the you know we're the ones we're the patriots we're the ones that always help other people out and then it always really weakens us here at, at home and i think that's on purpose uh, it's always a way to soak up more wealth yeah, for sure. And um, uh, this path that we're on right now, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but it, it is very worrisome. And um, you know, they were they were blaming Trump that he was a pawn of Russia and he was uh, trying to get us into war. And 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 that 
that's exactly what Biden is trying to do is get us into war. You can only provoke a country like Russia just so far. Right. And and they have these uh, extremely high tech hypersonic missiles that can allegedly go at 27 times the speed of sound. Wow. And yeah, you 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 see the videos on YouTube about it. And uh, if one hits anywhere near your area, what's going to happen is you'll see a blinding flash of light, and then the next second you'll feel like a huge stack of bricks fell onto you, and also that they're extremely hot. And in about five seconds, that's it for you. And of course, I'm in uh, Dallas Fort Worth area, which is a prime target. But I take comfort in knowing that it wouldn't hurt for very long. <laughs> true, very true. Uh, <laughs> Got to look on the bright side, right? Okay, let's do a couple more. Sir Frederick Pollock, Baronet, English judge. His grandfather was Lord Chief Baron of the Exchequer. His great uncle was a field marshal in the Anglo-Nepal War. Sir Arthur Alexander Priestley, member of parliament for 18 years. His father was a member of parliament. Sorry, that's all I got on that one. Sir John Puleston, P-U-L-E-S-T-O-N, railroad investor. He managed to obtain the role of secretary to a peace commission established before the American Civil War and achieved a national reputation. Presenting reports to Abraham Lincoln and the House of Representatives, when uh, the American Civil War broke out, Pileston was appointed as military agent for the state of Pennsylvania by, by the governor. With the rank of colonel, he later drew a lucrative salary as secretary of Butterfield's Overland Express Company and then became a broker on Wall Street with the firm Raymond Pulestin and Company. He was associated with Jay Cook, McCullough and Company bankers and returned to London, President of City of London Conservative Association and Treasurer of the Royal Asylum. Jay Cook is generally thought of as the first major investment banker in America. He died in 1905 and may have been in a pilgrim's list of the early 1900s, which I haven't seen. Uh, there, there are gaps in my information. Cook was an Episcopalian and financed the state of Pennsylvania in the Civil War to the extent of $3 million and the federal government, $511 million, and was often accused of assorted, assorted shady dealings. He played a lead role in financing the huge Northern Pacific Railway. Sir Boverton Redwood, he's another baronet. <clears throat> I guess it rhymes with bayonet. 19th century British chemical engineer, remembered as pioneer of the petroleum industry, member Royal Society of Edinburgh, vice president of the Society of Chemical Industries, president Institute of Petroleum Technologists, vice president Illuminating Engineering Society, co-founder in 1895, of Self-Propelled Traffic Association and the Royal Automobile Club in 1897, member Royal Commission on Fuel and Engines of World War I, supervised the use of napalm in British war 
actions in the, the conflict. Now here's a really key one. Field Marshal Earl Roberts, <clears throat> he, he became president of the Pilgrims for a number of years. Baron Roberts of Kandahar, member exalted order of the Star of India, most eminent order of the Indian Empire, companion of the order of the Indian Empire, Victoria Cross, illust illustrious order of St. Patrick, order of the Garter. Now, order of the Garter is limited to 27 individuals, including the British sovereign. Now, you could say it's above the Pilgrim Society in, in, in some sense. Knight of Grace of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, Crusader Order. Uh, member Order of the Bath, Royal Scottish Geographical Society. Privy Council to the British Sovereign, born in British India. To a general who served British interests for almost 50 years in subjugating India. Roberts joined the East India Company Army protecting Britain's opium dealing interests and helped defeat the Indian Rebellion of 1857. He was then transferred to the British Army and fought in the expedition to Abyssinia, that's Ethiopia, and the Second Anglo-Afghan War, in which his exploits earned him widespread fame. Roberts would go on to serve as commander-in-chief over British India before leading British forces for a year during the Second Boer War in South Africa. 21,360 children died in his South African concentration camps of dysentery and other illnesses, including ding fever. He also became the last commander in chief of British forces. There are many frightening war crimes in India and South Africa against the Boer settlers, that's Dutch. He became first president of the Pilgrim Society, June 1902, a post he held into 1914. That Boer War was a, you know, that doesn't get hardly any attention in the history books, but uh, there was some very terrible things happened during that thing. Yeah, they wanted them out of the gold and diamond areas. Right, yep. Platinum. Uh, Okay, we have in today's world extremely huge corporate conglomerate called Siemens, S-A-E-M-E-N-S, high-tech company, industrial company. It was founded by a member, Alexander Siemens. And he wasn't really British, but they brought him in, member of the Prussian Army expedition against France in 1870. Became a British subject in 1878. President, Institution of Civil Engineers, founder of Siemens Industrial Conglomerate, Europe's biggest corporation, today with over 300,000 employees. Delegate to International Electrical Congress in 1893. Family prominent in Germany since the late 1300s. A founder in 1871 of the Society of Telegraph Engineers and Electricians. Director at National Physical Laboratory of Great Britain. He lays several cables across the North Atlantic involved in furnaces for steel mills and crematoriums, plus generators, arc lamps, and cables. In 1881, Siemens provided the world's first city electric supply. 
His son-in-law, Bertram Hopkinson, a patent lawyer who researched flames, explosions, and metallurgy, and became a pioneer designer of the internal combustion engine. Wow, that's quite a pedigree. <laughs> and Siemens is still huge today. I mean, I'm sure they're still, uh, I see the signs and trucks for them. So still a big company to this day. Yes, and uh, there's a phenomenon I ought to mention in conjunction with that. Uh, a lot of these big four multinationals, when they have a USA or an operation in England, it'll be a member of the Pilgrims that, that runs it. Uh, let's see, there's a guy named Charles N. Bellum, B-E-L-L-M, senior, who used to run their USA operation, Siemens. This is some years ago. Uh, I can't update on everything because it just it requires a computer to do that. And, um, well, William McDonald Sinclair, Archdeacon of London, of the uh, Church of England, member of the London School Board, Sir Douglas Strait, lawyer, they call them barristers over there, member of Parliament and a judge, editor of the Pell-Mell Gazette newspaper. Now that was, I think, the same newspaper that, uh, that W.T. Stead was the editor of for a long time, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember if we talked about this or not, but when I uh, looked into the Fabian Society, Stead was really close with them and actually helped them out. And he actually dated Annie Bizant, who was a member for a while. You know, she was an occultist and all that stuff. But uh, I was surprised because here you, here you got this uh, guy who's connected to the top money money men in the in the world at that time and then he's fooling around hanging out with these fabian socialists but it seemed like the fabians hung out with a lot of big money men so it, it's kind oh, of yeah. interesting circles there well let's do a couple more uh, and then we'll see what else we want to talk about uh major general sir a.e turner or the bath father was a member of the inner temple law entity started as military secretary to the viceroy of ireland became inspector general of the british auxiliary forces member international club for psychical research claimed he had seen william t stead in seances chairman of the franco britannique alliance director of north borneo that's way over in the Western Pacific, North Borneo Chartered Company, which featured railway lines and plantations and also diamond exploration and recovery. They have diamonds over there. And the Manchester North Borneo Rubber Company and chairman of North Borneo State Rubber Holding Company. Now, here's, a, here's one that had... Uh, high-flying title Lord Strathcona and Mount Royal also known as Baron Strathcona member order of St. Michael and St. George Royal Victorian order Privy Council to the British Sovereign 
fellowship of the Royal Society, dominating shareholder in Hudson's Bay Company of Canada, president of the Bank of Montreal, which is now in the billions, founder of Canadian Pacific Railway, which is a giant enterprise dealing in not only uh, railroads, obviously, but also timber and natural resources, chairman of Burma Oil over in Southeast Asia, and chairman of Anglo-Persian Oil Company. He was running a lot of things. Canadian High Commissioner for the United Kingdom, <clears throat> Chancellor of McGill University. He sent Canadian troops to fight with the British in the South African Boer War, which was fought over diamond and gold-bearing territory. We mentioned that. He built Royal Victoria College, member of the Canadian House of Commons, involved in very large real estate dealings, founded Royal Trust and Montreal Trust Company, more billion-dollar operations. His mother descended from the second Duke of Albany, and he owned the Manitoba Canada Free Press. Wow. It's just amazing how these guys are connected to so many different things. It's it's like, where do they find the time to do all this? Well, I'll tell you what. I've seen some listings in the Who's Who in America, <clears throat> like uh, William E. Simon, former Treasury Secretary around 1974, and he had an extremely long listing. And, um, oh, what was this other guy's name who chaired the... Atomic Energy Commission, Glenn T. Seaborg, S-E-A-B-O-R-G, and he was a member, and he didn't admit to being a member in the Who's Who in America, but he spilled the beans on everything else. Like I said, he chaired the Atomic Energy Commission, and he was buying uranium from Floyd Odlum, another member, for, for all the operations of the Atomic Energy Commission. And uh, they had him on a number of corporate boards of high-tech companies, uh, technology companies. And Seaborg is discoverer or co-discoverer or something like 17 isotopes. And uh, after he left the uh, Nuclear Power Commission, the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, he became a director of the World Future Society. So there we are with the 200 years again. And they never quit. I wonder if that society is still around today. I've, I've oh, heard yeah, that name. Are. Okay, okay. That'd be worth looking into. World Future Society. I got their literature once, and uh, they sent me a pamphlet, and it had a, a bright blue circle on the cover, and a slash drawn through the American flag, a slash drawn through the American flag, and underneath it says, a world citizen? Who, me? <laughs> Gosh, all these globalist groups, it's just amazing. I I'm surprised we have any freedom left whatsoever. I mean, like I said earlier, they're so um, well-networked, you know, and they have so much money behind them. I that's, the thing, that's probably the thing that uh, surprised me the most about looking into this kind of stuff is – even these groups that seem kind of socialist bent or, or communist bent, well, they've got tons of money behind them. Some of the biggest names in, in, out there are, are 
supporters of them or think like them. It's just crazy. Yeah, and, um, you know, here in Texas, I've contacted, oh, I don't know, uh, several dozen people that call themselves conservatives, conservative activists, and I sent them documentation about this organization, and it's like, as soon as they see that, their days like they just ran into a highway uh, bridge pillar support at high speed and they can't process it or they don't want to and uh, basically they don't have any guts i mean they'll they'll stand for things like um, well we we don't want to have critical race theory pushed in our schools and uh, we we don't like these attacks on the institution of marriage. Uh, well, you know, I never, I never got to get married, but <laughs> I, I would have if something would have come along. But, uh, but anyway, um, so these conservatives are standing for good things, but uh, just damn, they don't want to know where all this is really coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't want to hear about a secret society hiding in the dark. Yeah. Uh, they just, they just, like I said, they don't want to process it. Boy, that's the truth. Uh, you know, I've noticed, you know, that's one of the big things I've noticed too. I've been called every name in the book, you know, by conservative friends. And I'm like, Hey man, I'm trying to point out that the things that you're against, well, these groups are doing them and they're responsible for them. But, you know, like you said, people don't want to own up to the the hard, you know, the cold facts because that would require them to kind of, um, well, for one, it would require them to actually research things for themselves instead of just depending on what to be told by their favorite pundits. But also, I think they have a little bit of hope still that the government deep down is, is good and, and for them and for freedom, and they don't want to give that up and it's just a shame. It really is. Uh, I know. Well, like what, what's going on right now, you know, with uh, the whole Ukraine Russia situation, and you know, it's a lot of us are like, it's not that we're pro Putin, but you know, we've been through this kind of thing a time or two. You know, we've seen what they did with Vietnam. We see what they did with Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, and. You know, those things, looking in hindsight, were not about protecting the Constitution or protecting the freedoms of Americans. We we lost more freedoms under that, you know, those different things. And so I'm just amazed that so many people I know in the, on the conservative side are kind of buying this whole Ukraine-Russia thing hook, line, and sinker and not at least asking some questions about it. You know, like, are we being told the truth. Is there a lot of propaganda going on right now? <laughs> you know, it's, and, and, and plus we just got through with this whole COVID thing and we knew they were really doing a number on us with it as well. So it's crazy how quickly they can get people back on their side. Well, yeah, this, this 200 year thing. So, uh, they're, they're also planning a short term, like, a five-year plan well we're going to do this for the next five years and in the 60s they were uh, 
late fifties, they were planning, what are we going to do to get rid of silver coins and, uh, cheapen the money supply, uh, so that they could hurt the public with inflation. <clears throat> and, um, so all this inflation that we're seeing now, I mean, I think the, the place where you see it the most other than the gas station is the supermarket. And I see products that are way up over what they used to be. Something I used to get for 69 cents till recently is now 94. Uh, a package of uh, turkey or smoked chicken lunch meat used to be 349. That's 452 or something like that. And they're saying inflation is 7%. Excuse me, it's more than that. And uh, <clears throat> so, but but here in Texas, I've tried to, to, to get people's attention about this Governor Greg Abbott, how he's a, a cat's paw for this Pilgrim Society cartel because he's got, or he did have for some months, something he called a strike force. Well, that's a military term. And he, he ordered uh, small business closed all over Texas. Oh, you're non-essential. Close them down. We, we want uh, to protect you from the virus. Well, that was just an excuse to destroy independent business and, pulverize it and concentrate more wealth and fewer hands. He's got this this thing called a strike force. I did a write-up on it, and uh, a bunch of members are billionaires. And I'm uh, now eight years behind updated information on who the members of this thing are, the, the pilgrims. So some of them could be members, and I wouldn't have a way to prove it, but I do know that uh, the key, key liaison on that is Richard Fisher, who used to be president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. The Federal Reserve banks are an anti-competitive organization. The, there was one um, Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis some months ago, and he was saying, oh, we need to continue the, the COVID lockdowns. Oh, why? Uh, he's supposed to be a banker, not a, a doctor. And, oh, well, you know, let's continue the, the lockdown so we can destroy more independent business and uh, our real estate tentacles absorb all these bankruptcies, see. And, um, but Richard Fisher is on this commission. And like I say, he used to be president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. And he, he's also an advisor to Barclays Bank over in London, which is one of their big-time operations. And he was associated with uh, Kissinger Associates, which there we are again. And in the 1970s, he worked under Robert Vincent Russa, a Rhodes Scholar on Wall Street, who was also in the Pilgrims and a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Rusa was a partner in Brown Brothers Harriman and Company, 59 Wall Street. And so it, it, here it is, uh, looming as a specter over Texas and ruining businesses here 
over 11,000 businesses put out of business. And I try to explain to people and they don't want to see it. And Alex Jones is based in Austin. He will not allow any mention of the Pilgrim Society <coughs> in Rebel News Canada. They've got good content, but they won't allow any mention of it either. They've got some kind of deal with Alex Jones. And I think what his problem is, is that he's got an ego going on and he doesn't want to admit that the Bilderberg is not the top group out there. Yeah. And uh, he just doesn't want to yeah, retract they, anything, you know? Yeah, it seems like, just speaking of Bilderberg, it seems like they may be kind of taking a back seat. Uh, I don't know if maybe they've accomplished as much as they want to accomplish. I, I think somebody said they didn't even have a meeting this past year. Of course, that could have been because of COVID, but it seems like they could have easily had something online. Um <coughs> So I'm kind of wondering what the deal is with them. I don't know. I uh, I don't follow them as much as I used to, but I do know enough about it that there's so many people that come to a meeting, uh, one meeting, and they're never invited again. Like Rick Perry, who was governor of Texas, and then he was he he was running for USA president. They invited him to Bilderberg meeting in Turkey. <clears throat> And uh, so I think it, what it is is that they get indoctrinated into what the one-worlders want out of them. Uh, but they're, they're only cat's paws, these politicians. They're not a continuing power. Once they're out of office, uh, they'll leave office with some, some number of millions of dollars. But they're not in the billions or trillions like their sponsors. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing how many powerful groups there are out there that seem to have the similar, you know, similar goals. And people, you know, they act like it's ridiculous that when people like us talk about a one world government, even though all these very powerful people have talked about it for many, many years. But it may not be that all these groups are necessarily in bed together, but they have the same goals basically and they know that they will have a place in that order most likely if they play their cards right and it's obvious to me it seems like the great reset is all about the new world order at least consolidating even more power and um and that to me is one of the biggest things about the new world order is the consolidation of power and i don't know i mean I don't see how people can't see it at this point, but I guess they just still have their blinders on. Well, they like to distract them with uh, sports teams for, for one thing and movie stars. Oh yeah, definitely. That's, yeah. I, I swear, I think that is the main job of a president, especially in the modern age is just distraction. And he can provide, you know, he divides, make sure both sides are divided and one side will blame absolutely all the bad stuff on him. The other side will practically worship him, you know? And so people will have their eyes on him and they won't be looking in the background at the Pilgrim Society or, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations or Skull and Bones or you name it, whatever other group, whatever other group is going on and pulling the strings in the background. And 
I think that's the main reason we still have a president. Uh, I don't even think that really there's a reason for one because, you know, you look at Biden, it's obvious that he's not <sighs> he's not doing anything. He's not making these decisions. And I think it's probably been that way for the most part for a long time. Oh, yeah. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, well, I was going to say something about guns. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should, but uh, I uh, that that's one of our basic freedoms that we're supposed to have. And. Uh, you know, my view is that they're, they're for defense. And, uh, uh, of course, there's a lot of pressure for guns to not be owned by the public anymore. And they're always trying some kind of tactic about, well, turning in this, that, and the other, and bribing the state legislators, bribing members of Congress to get what they want. And, you know, I don't mean to ramble, but I'm still seeing people with masks plastered all over their face. And uh, there's a uh, commercial that I see on YouTube, a lot of YouTube channels for a company called Brenda's Cleaning. And it it, it may be regional in this part of the country. I don't know, but... uh, They've got this dumb cluck of a woman, and she's saying, I wear my mask, they wear their mask. I show my rump brand, they show their rump brand. I obey Bill Gates, they obey Dr. Fauci. And all this, (laughs) I get so tired of that commercial. And I figured, you know what? A cleaning company wouldn't have the financial resources to buy that many commercials. They got something from pharma. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's getting hard to tell what's a real news piece and what's, uh, you know, an embedded, uh, what do they call it? Um, I'm blanking on the term now, but it's an ad that's embedded as subliminal? a news piece. Uh, not subliminal. Or some, I can't even talk. Subliminal. Um, native ad. Native ad. I can't. I got to get a drink of water here. A native advertising. So sometimes they'll hide ads in a news piece but then they're supposed to reveal that like at some point that it's actually an ad i don't know if they even do that anymore um geez i you know i don't watch tv i just use a computer mm-hmm. yeah well I, i'd same here that's mostly what i do too i do listen to the radio a little bit but i can hardly listen to it anymore either yeah let me uh, mention something kind of interesting here real quick. I think we're about to wind down on our time, but uh, there was a name in the 1914 roster, in the New York roster, <sighs> Beverly Chu, C-H-E-W. This was a guy. Yeah, I know, that's that's not the general thing that you think of is would be a guy's name sometimes over in england they have uh, evelyn something or other is a man's name well i don't know whenever i hear the word name pat i think well is it 
Patrick or Patricia. And anyway, uh, this this I guess it's an archaic use, but guy named Beverly Chu in the 1914 roster descended from somebody else of the same name uh, a century or almost a century earlier who was the dominant financial power in the city of New Orleans and ran the New Orleans branch of the second United States Bank. Mm, interesting. So yeah, yeah, the financial history of this country, it's just it's what we have going on today is tied to what happened centuries ago. It's still there lingering on. And that is one of the as cliche as it sounds, that is one of those important things about learning history, you know. I mean it sounds old hat, but those that don't know the history are doomed to repeat it. And that's, we keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. And, you know, it's people like us that actually try and, and put time into research things. You know, we're just left kind of out in the lurch because we're a fringe minority, you know, and we have to look on the internet. And, and when we go out to the grocery store or, or a pub or wherever people go and have to hear the stupidity of our fellow citizens, and some of them are good people and very well-meaning, but they just don't know anything. You know, they're – and there's this uh, kind of arrogance and ignorance, you know, especially the people that just follow the mainstream news and don't do any of their own research. Yeah. They're so arrogant about what they know, and they're so ready to call you a conspiracy theorist or crazy or whatever it might be, and you just can't reach people like that, you know. I, I think there are – I'll say this. I think in the last few years, there are some younger people actually who are more open-minded than people my age and older, because I think that they've seen enough and maybe weren't quite exposed as much as we were to the mainstream news as far as just having the mainstream channels and that being your only source of news. Uh, and so I think they've started to, to question things and they're a little bit more open-minded in some cases but, uh, you know, it's it's still a fringe minority of people for sure. Well, I have a neighbor that uh, uh, works for Amazon and uh, I was asking him about Bill Gates. He's oh, he's one of our finest people. You know, he's a great philanthropist. And. And. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people can't can't see anything they don't want to see anything uh, yeah but i mean i would be deliriously happy if i heard that bill gates got hit by a 50 pound hailstone you know right right well you know uh quickly and we'll finish up here in just a second but i've been trying to do a little bit of a dive on uh george soros you know i know it's kind of cliche but like i'd never really looked into all of his you know, non-governmental organizations, all the stuff he funds. So I've just started that and, you know, it's huge. It's a huge undertaking. But one thing quickly I have noticed so far is uh, not only does he fund these uh, revolutions like the one, the Orange Revolution, I think happened in Ukraine in 2004, and then also the uh, revolution in 2014 that our State Department was behind, but he is a funder of the Atlantic Council, which is 
works hand in hand with NATO. He's a funder of so many of these, like the CFR, the uh, another one, the Center for a New American Security. Um, he's he funds the Ford Foundation and the, helps fund uh, the Carnegie Endowment. I mean, and a bunch of these other ones that are more like the Atlantic Council, more geared towards foreign policy and more kind of war hawks. And here he's supposed to be this guy who wants peace. You know, he, he wants this equality for everyone, but he's actually funding a lot of things that are causing unrest and, and causing people to die, frankly. So, you know, they have their foundations and their, uh, you know, that's a cover a lot of times. I mean, maybe they do some good, but it's also a cover for being able to control policies and, and get things done that you can't really get done solely by politics. Well, my only one I hear about Soros is complaints about uh, he he gives large sums of money to get district attorneys elected in uh, big metro areas, uh, and and these district attorneys are very 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 soft on crime, and uh, so I think what it's all about is wanting to get a federal police force organized, and there be no more local police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely part of it for sure. Uh, there's this uh, group that I kept looking at, running into, looking into re- Ukraine, Ukraine, <laughs> and uh, it's called the International Renaissance Foundation. And turns out it's an open society foundation. And Soros funds it all the way, and they've been over in Ukraine since '92. But the, here they are, and all these. Every time you see a one of these countries that has this revolution so-called basically basically it's a regime change uh that usually the cia is involved in too well here you see george soros says open societies are one of those other organizations he controls and then you also see another organization that was new to me called the uh i think it's called the national endowment for democracy and got to looking into that one and I've heard several former CIA people say, oh, that's just a front for the CIA. They they started that in uh, under Reagan when the Iran-Contra thing was going on and the CIA was getting a bad rap. And so they said, we're going to start a branch that's got uh, a better title, better PR. So it's crazy, you know, that uh, here you got Soros on one side, supposedly as far left as you can get, and then you got the CIA and the State Department and different people working together for the same goals. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm just going to continue on with my affairs and do the best I can and uh, survive as best I can. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll post comments on some of the YouTube videos. <clears throat> that I know is making somebody squirm, uh, like Ray Dalio uh, had an interview where he was interviewing Paul Volcker. And uh, so I post this comment about how Ray Dalio in his genealogy has Vanderbilts and Whitney's in his genealogy. And also Volcker uh, being in the Pilgrims and uh, Dalio, he probably is, but I can't prove it. I don't have a roster to show it or a listing in a who's who where he would admit it. 
But anytime they're running with people like that, I, I just to me they're they're not trustworthy. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I guess uh, we've been at it for an hour and twenty two minutes, so uh, we'll wrap it up here. And um, if you would give us your websites, and that way people can check out what you do, and and then we'll uh, talk off air and we'll set up another show. Okay. Well. In uh, January of 2011, uh, my first site went up, silversteelers.net. <clears throat> it's a chronology of attacks by members of this secret society on the use of silver as money. They also attack gold. And uh, then to go along with that site, I have nosilvernationalization.org with over 200 research pieces, which runs to over 4 million words, all documented. It's all free access. Nobody pays a nickel to go there. And I have um, something a little different, texaspetprotect.org, which is exposing a fraudulent pet charity. And um, you can also go on YouTube and look up a video entitled The Last Great Secret of Modern History, which has uh, an overview of the Pilgrim Society and some of the important people who were in there, like James B. Hagen, who seized control over the Kern River in California and all kind of exploits. And uh, it'll leave your head spinning what these guys have done. And, uh, not ordinary lives you know they're stratospheric commissars of affairs and uh, <clears throat> that's about it for now i'm i'm not uh, popular as a uh, a guest to invite on the youtube interview circuit because they have a strong pattern of only inter interviewing people who are trying to get the audience to buy a subscription Everything I do is free public access, and so there's no way they can make money by having me on. Well, I appreciate you being on very much. <laughs> it's always a great show, and I look forward to the next one, too. And uh, I'll be in touch with you here soon in the next few days. Maybe we can do one next week if you're not busy, if you have a free evening, and uh, cover some more stuff if you have more information. Or if not, if you ever want to talk about anything else, whatever you'd like to talk about, I'm up for it. Well, I'm I'm only uh, I'm only into controversies. I'm not into anything that's bland. That's what I like. No. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, that's the only thing that you know. I mean, there's a thousands of people that talk about current events, and that's why I stay away from them most of the time. Because frankly, there's people that can do it a lot better than me, and uh, I'd rather talk about controversies and more mysterious stuff because uh, that's, you know, not a lot of people are talking about it. And, you know, it's good to find out those things because then it allows you to put that with the, the mainstream stuff. And you can kind of get an, a real picture of how the world really works. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. Um, what kind of uh, ethnic uh, ancestry do you have or uh, your, your, your ancestors came here from where? Oh gosh, I'm as white as a polar bear. 
It's like German. England, England Europe, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, I have a French name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was French. Yeah, it is. There's an Italian version, S-A-V-O-I-A, and there's an English version, S-A-V-O-Y, and it it uh, it's a royal house, but there's so many of us that we're really just common now. I yeah. think of myself as a common man. <laughs> right. I don't want to run anybody else's life, just my own. Yes, yeah, same here, same here. I would never think about, you know, you either think like we do or you think like the other people. And uh, when those other people get some power, then, uh, boy, they really show their true colors and they want to control people and control a lot of people. And that's that is dangerous. Well, the whole uh, end goal of it all is to be able to say, I want that man killed and bring that woman to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, Charles. I'll talk to you soon, man, and uh, we'll do this all over again. Thank you so much for being on, and I'll put your show, uh, your links in my show notes so people can check those out. And nothing is for sale. It's all free, and I don't need anybody's money. Very cool. Sounds good, man. And that concludes my show with Charles Savoy. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for hanging out with us. Please support his links, which will be in my show notes. And please support this show if you can. And the best way to do that is patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. And if you can't support financially, please consider sharing the show, telling other people about the show. You can even take clips of the show, do a screen recording, and put it up on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Telegram or whatever. Just put a link to the show. It would be great. I would love it if someone could maybe make a collage of different sound bites that I have done since the show started because I'm doing everything on my own, all the editing, all the recording, all the research, and I just don't have the time to do a lot of those things. But I know that it would be great to have things like that out there on the Internet so people could get a good sample of what this show is about. Anyway, thank you so much. I want to thank my wonderful patrons. They are awesome and they keep the show going. I want to also thank ACR, Alternate Current Radio, which is my podcasting family. They've been so good to me. Please check out all their fantastic shows, including The Boiler Room, which I'm on usually on Thursday nights. But even if I'm not, there are so many great guests and individual thinkers on there that It's one of those shows you don't want to miss. So that's ACR, alternatecurrentradio.com for talk shows and music. And just thank them for being such a good friend to the Oddcast and for supporting me. And if you can, also help them out because they're putting a lot of money into this network because they want to be around after all of these mainstream platforms fold or start to censor people like us, and they already are. So they're doing everything they can to make sure that you guys will have a place to go to find information that the mainstream corporati is not telling you. Also, thank you to FringeRadioNetwork.com for posting the Oddcast. Thank you to John Brisson for posting up my show on his YouTube channel, We've Read the Documents. Go support all these people that you like if you can in whatever way you can. 
because we are in the brave new world. This is the future. I love you guys. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.